Welcome to the Homeschool Mama Self-Care Podcast. I'm Teresa Wiedrich from CapturingTheCharmLife.com. If you are a homeschool mama challenged by doubt, not sure you can do this homeschool thing. If you're a homeschool mama challenged by overwhelm, there are just too many things to do. Or if you are a homeschool mama unsure that the way you're showing up in your homeschool isn't the way you want to be showing up in your homeschool, then this is the podcast for you. I'm here to encourage you in your homeschool journey to help you strategize ways to turn your homeschool challenges into your homeschool charms. So welcome, homeschool mama. Today, I get to introduce you to Christine Dixon. Christine worked as an educational therapist for 20 years and is now a mind-body coach who focuses on self-compassion, internal family systems, nonviolent communication, and other inner wisdom tools to help people heal themselves from inside out. Christine works one-on-one with clients and also leads weekly support groups in internal family systems. She offers free monthly workshops and book discussions. She can be found at www.theordinarysacred.com and on Instagram at The Ordinary Sacred. Welcome, Christine. It's so nice to officially share time with you. Yes, I'm excited. It's such a privilege to connect with somebody that I feel like I'm a friend with before I've actually spent individual time with. (laughs) Yeah. Your story and your focus for your life, all of the different aspects of how you are online and um, your history, all of all of the details feel so common to my experience. Mm. And I just feel like I've met a friend before I've even seen you on screen. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much. I feel the same way. I think, yeah, sometimes you are just kindred spirits have common experience and, and kind of common. um, It's like our lives are leading in a similar direction. Yeah, So there's a lot of resonance. Yeah, I want to jump right in because you have so many different areas of discussion that we could go down. (laughs) The discussion of internal family systems. Uh, when we talk about nonviolent communication, I, I think of those two as your primary focus, but ultimately it's to me, it's about being understood and understanding other people and getting connected and maintaining connection with the most important people around us. And as homeschool families, vital. This, this is the biggest aspect of what we learn in a homeschool family. It's not about education. It's not about socialization. It's not about all those things that people talk about, but it is about that. And you address all those family things straight on. I would love to first hear your story, your family story, or, you know, a little bit about your own family history. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I often say, you know, sometimes I'll start with my kind of professional history, but it doesn't really break the surface of, I think what leads us toward kind of our life purpose is happens from birth, right? We we have all of these experiences and then it leads us down this path. So, um, and, you know, I always say it's like bullet points, so it doesn't do it justice, but Um, so the first one was that I was really brought up in quite a, a religious structured home. 
And I received the messages that I was bad at my core and that, um, and, you know, just, just the whole authoritarian structure of, of shame and punishment in order to, you know, very well-meaning to try to get our children and people to fall in line and do the right quote unquote, right thing. Um, so I internalized a lot of that. I had a lot of inner critics. Um, I thought at first that I only had one, but through internal family systems, I now realize I have four very large, different types of inner critics. And, um, so they were really hounding me all the, all of the time. And that kept me in line socially. Um, it also kept, um, problematic emotions down, Mm. right. Especially as, as a woman anger, it kept anger down, but even, um, fear and sadness and some of those things, um, I thought that I was weak. I was bad, you know, for experiencing emotion. So, so kept those down. And then of course, kept me really being a people pleaser Mm -hmm. and pleasing other people, um, to my own expense at my own expense. And, um, and, and I think even going against my own limits, my own physical limits in order to try to serve people and, um, and maybe even doing things that were not, uh, true to myself, right. right. That were just what other people were doing because that's what you do. And, um, so I, anyway, I ended up in, um, my first marriage, um, that was quite abusive and very dysfunctional. Yeah. And I really believe that part of that was because I, ha- I didn't have connection to my inner compass. Right. I didn't have connection to this very valuable emotion of anger that says, no, this isn't okay. Right. I, I, was able to think that I was bad if I did something to someone else, but not if they did it to me. Right. So there was this double standard. And, um, so gosh, make a long story short, um, after 10 years and, um, two beautiful children later, um, I, and really I began working. Um, I gave up trying to fix my hut, my first husband and kind of turned inward and started mm-hmm. looking at myself. Right. And then that's when I realized that, um, uh, and I really did that for about three years, uh, practicing mindfulness, practicing, um, self-compassion, a lot of these things that I had never <laughs> allowed myself to before. Um, and, and then about three years after that, I ended up leaving my first husband and, um, a year after that, he took his life. Um, he died by suicide. And so then there was just a lot of, so many layers of trauma and guilt and um, uh, just anguish, I think there. Yeah. And I was kind of on this, this really beautiful path. And I ended up uh, meeting my current husband. We've been married about 10 years now. And um, we have this really beautiful partnership. But about four years ago, I think that the, the trauma that I had experienced all of those years, um, it, because it didn't have an opportunity to really be processed and witnessed, it um, manifested in my body. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I had this, this really severe physical illness that was kind of a, the doctors didn't know what was happening with me. And um, I was essentially bedridden for a year. Mm. And during that time, I um, learned, I was almost forced to become my own authority because no one else could help me 
you know, all of these authorities that I had relied on that I thought had all the answers um, didn't. And so um, I began to just kind of test everything, test and approve, you know, what, what works, what's effective, what's not. And I developed this whole kind of toolkit of what was direct and effective and compassionate and actually helped me heal, um, Mm -hmm. particularly emotional trauma and also physical ailments. But, um, and so up until that point, I didn't mention, I had been an educational therapist for 20 years. And, um, but at this point it was like, my life was so full. Um, and I, I began to follow this fascination kind of with, with mind body healing and, and then began to transition into this uh, mind body coach, but they're actually very similar. Um, the educational therapy and, and mind body coaching, because as an educational therapist, I worked with kids who had quote unquote learning differences, right. Right. And that didn't fit in the box. And I worked with them one-on-one and I really helped them get to know themselves and understand themselves and understand their strengths and the beauty of their uniqueness and what fascinated them. And I taught them how to advocate for themselves and how to, you know, speak to other people and know what their own needs were. And I feel like that's really a lot of what I do now is it's just expanded to adults and everyone that in what you were saying at the beginning, connecting to yourself first and foremost, so that you really have this foundation to be able to connect to other people. And um, yeah, so that's where I'm at. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably because um, I've learned and it has been a challenge for me too, that when I'm vulnerable with people, I discover that people feel like someone is sharing something that they're experiencing, even if it's not the exact story and our stories aren't exactly the same, but we, you and I have a lot of common themes in a lot of our experiences. And I know that when we share our stories, other people feel seen. And, but what you're speaking to about understanding yourself, or like you said, come to the true North or, Mm -hmm. you know, understand your internal compass, that one, the way that I was brought up, I was always taught that you can't do that because that's self-centered. And I counter that often. Sometimes if I'm honest, I get tired of answering that because, uh, well, it just seems like, no, but you're missing the point when you're characterizing it as self-centered. But I also have been there and understood it in that context that it was a self-centered approach. It was only until I became so overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and didn't know how to engage all the different relationships in my world, literally all of them, that I came to understand that the the true north or the most important relationship is my relationship with myself. And it's because that one wasn't explored, Mm -hmm. it wasn't honored, it wasn't even acknowledged that. I was having such a mess with all the other relationships around me. So, you know, I guess it's hitting a wall and realizing that you don't really have a choice. You have to go deep into that relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're speaking to, I think what a lot of people run up against, um, because I'll, I'll often say that 
self-love and self-compassion is the foundation of all of health, of all of healthy choices. And yet we, many of us have been brought up to believe that that's selfish. And I think that that can sometimes serve um, a community as far as we need to give to others and not to ourselves. But that's, that's, that's like, you know, it's like a pendulum that there's these two opposite extremes. So the, there's the one extreme where people are giving to themselves at the expense of others. Yeah. And so, so this message that we get, I think, is trying to counter that. And so it says, give to others at the expense of yourself. But they're both opposite extremes. And there is something in the middle that says there is a both and. And so I often tell people, when you're giving to yourself, just it's not that you're giving to yourself above other people, but you are giving to your, you're including yourself with other people. When you look in the mirror, you are another person that you care for, that you want the best for, that you value, right? I think to love someone is to value them. And so you want, you want well-being for this person in the mirror. And really you are the most highly equipped to care for yourself, right? You know yourself and you know better what you need. Sometimes we're disconnected from that. Um, but But um, as we begin to get to know ourselves and we begin to be what in IFS we call our own primary caregiver, then we set other people free, right? So we begin to to take care of ourselves in a very responsible way so that we're not so needy and dependent on other people, right? And and that means physically and emotionally, right? I often tell people if, if someone else, you know, you want so desperately for someone in front of you to get this like understand that I'm hurting, right? Um, turn towards yourself first and you get it. That, oh my gosh, yes, you're hurting. I see you, I see you're hurting, right? So like giving that, like everything you want from another person, giving it to yourself first really helps equip you to give from overflow. This, and that's is, what a I- very, this is a very powerful approach especially as we in our unique scenario or in, in um, you know, in the lives of the people listening to us, they are with their children all the time. And I learned this in my homeschool years, especially in the early years, but I'm still seeing it and learning it and expanding on my understanding in it that my mini mirrors, my children who are with me all the time, it is very easy for me to point fingers towards them and say, you are doing this thing to me. And Mm -hmm. that is kind of the human default system to just like you said, not really see that actually, this isn't about the other person at all. This is about you and how you're experiencing somebody else. And, you know, the two elements that I see you explore the most, the internal family systems and the nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg, they address that idea or that approach differently but mm-hmm. they have incredible depth in engaging that. And so, you know, it, we could have an entire podcast episode. We could have a series of podcast episodes <laughs> on each of those concepts. But I would love to hear your thoughts. What to you is the most important elements out of each of those approaches to dealing with this exact scenario? Mm-hmm. So the scenario of just being with your children and 
thinking you're making me do this kind of thing. You're making me feel this because you're not working with me and doing what I want you to do maybe in a homeschool or you're Mm -hmm. complaining all the time or you're bickering all the time or, you know, all the children's stuff because you've got two kids. Um, Mm -hmm. I think one of your kids has grown up and graduated or have both of them. Yeah. So one, one just went to college and I actually have four stepchildren that are, are grown and two grandchildren. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. And then one, one, one still at home. That's a sophomore in okay. high school. So yeah. you, yeah, you've had the experience of being a parent and feeling yeah. like, why are you doing this thing? And looking at them and saying, you're doing this to me. And then you've transitioned into this uh, self-awareness that this is actually not about them doing something to me, but right. actually it's you having to address yourself. So how, yeah. How would you engage that scenario? Yeah. yeah. So I remember the very first um, thing that Marshall Rosenberg said that just hit me in the heart. Uh, he said, because he's trying to get us to have empathy, right. For the people in front of us and try to get curious about their needs, mm-hmm. right. Rather than um, just judging what they're doing and thinking you know, labeling them as they're bad, they're rude, they're, you know, complaining, whatever it is to say, I wonder what their need is underneath. But I found that it was very difficult for me to do, especially with my children in a moment of overwhelm Mm -hmm. when I just wanted to yell and scream and say, just stop it. Right. And so the, what he said was in an, in a moment where you cannot bring yourself to have empathy for another person, it's because you must turn it towards yourself first. And so I, I began to give myself permission to go. So I would go to the laundry room, the bathroom, the closet, just somewhere by myself. And I would tell my children, mommy needs a timeout is what I would say. And I would say, I'm going to be right back. And I'm going to, you know, just, I'm going to be gone for two minutes and I'll be right back. And what I would do is I would go and give myself empathy. And what that looks like is I would turn toward the parts of me that were feeling overwhelmed or feeling frustrated. And so I would, I would name that. I would say, oh my gosh, you're feeling so overwhelmed. This is so hard for you. So I would just kind of reflect that back. And so again, I'm combining here. IFS and NBC, because when we turn in toward our own parts that are kind of like our own inner children, um, that's IFS, right? We're giving attention to our inner children first. And so I would turn toward them and say, oh my goodness, this seems impossible to you. You're so overwhelmed. And I would get this response of just, yes, I am. And I didn't realize before that I could actually witness myself in a really powerful way like that. And so some, one thing that I do is I have a practice where I put my hand on my heart and mm-hmm. I say, beloved, I'm here for you. I see your suffering and I'm here. And so, and there's nothing even to fix in this. There's no big insight that's coming. It's just this compassionate presence for the parts of me that are overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And often just that witness allows them to relax. And I will feel it in my body. Like it might come out as tears initially, just in the being seen, right? Because those parts of us want to be seen. Mm 
right? Yes, this is hard. This is hard. Oh my gosh, they're being so terrible. Yes. <laughs> and so, so then I might have tears. Um, an emotional weight actually occurs for 90 seconds in our bodies. Right. So it, so initially I would even time it. Like, I'm just going to be with you for 90 seconds. Oh, 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 yes. You're so upset. You're so upset. Oh, you know, oh. and then, it, and then it'll relax. And then in that relaxed place, I found that I would have more clarity and more calm. So these are qualities in IFS of what we call our true self. Um, so, but I found that the first step was turning toward those agitated parts, letting them get big, letting them speak. And then they calm down. And what I'm left with is calm and clarity and confidence. And I would walk out of the bathroom or the laundry room and I would come back out to my kids and I would say, um, you know, mom, you got really overwhelmed there. And, and then, so then that's when I would be able to use NVC, which um, NVC really focuses on being able to communicate how you're feeling and what you're needing. So I might say, I was feeling really frustrated because I have a need for order in this common space right. because I was asking them to pick up their things and they weren't right. doing it and, um, or whatever it might be. I have it, you know, they're not coming down for dinner. I have a need, you know, for us to be together as a family. And then, and then I would be able to get curious about them and say, so what's happening for you? And I couldn't have that openness toward them to really hear from them until I had already heard from myself. I found sitting in front of a mirror and mm -hmm. engaging it the same way is even it's more objective for me because I, when even I look at my face and I'm sad or I'm angry or I'm anything intense, then I have a sense of compassion for myself, just like I was looking at a picture in a gallery and it sounds super weird and it is but it's really effective. I love that. I love that. I actually just started doing that. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, you might've heard me uh, talk about it. I, um, because so in, in internal family systems, we, it explains that we have different parts within us, right? We're not just one kind of unified being we have, and it, you can just think of it like if you were at a party and you, um, you know, you would say part of me really wants to stay and interact with people. And part of me really wants to go home and go to sleep. Right. And, and they're both there and they both have these kind of competing desires. And so there are different parts of us with different agendas and perspectives and being able to understand that it's okay for us to have a lot of different things at once um, has been really healing for me. So one of the things that I'll do that I started doing is I would go into the mirror, just like you said, I got agitated because someone didn't show up for a meeting that they had agreed to. And I was feeling really frustrated. And so I went to the mirror and I could see my face like an animal, like, like kind of snarling. Right. I was like, <laughs> you know. And then as I looked deeper into my eyes, I saw my eyes tearing up mm -hmm. And I was able to see that there was like this very protective part out here, protecting a vulnerability back here. So I even saw sort of these two parts in the mirror and exactly what you said, I had such compassion 
for both of them, I had appreciation for this, this animal that was so loyal and protecting me. And then I understood that what was really behind it was this vulnerable, you know, fearful part, afraid of abandonment and rejection. Exactly. One of the biggest things that I've learned in my life and continue to unravel still, but is similar to what you said is having um, a relationship with anger that said to me, thou shalt not have anger. You shall not feel angry. And because I frankly was afraid of anger because of how Mm -hmm. I'd seen it manifested as a child. And I still, to this day, have visceral, very intense reactions. And as much as in myself, as I do when other people are experiencing anger, and I've misinterpreted it in so many different ways, I've misinterpreted it as threat, mostly. But Mm -hmm. I've learned that anger is the tip of an iceberg. It is really the instinctive protective mechanism that is your first feeling. And then if you'd, like you said, wait long enough, you say 90 seconds, or frankly, I feel like I've had to sit with that feeling in those experiences so many years, so many times to, to become okay with actually being angry. And the longer that I've done it, I've realized there are all sorts of things underneath anger, just like you'd said, rejection is a big one. Um, But all sorts of different feelings underneath that anger And when we allow ourselves to experience the anger, feel it, let it pass through and get curious about it and ask ourselves, what's the thought behind the feeling, then you realize there's more feelings. There's a whole bunch of other feelings and there's more feelings that need to have us sit with them and get curious about what's the thought behind those feelings like Mm -hmm. rejection Mm -hmm. or whatever. So many possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And again, in, in internal family systems, there, there are different types of parts that we have, and there are protective parts. And then there's what what are called exiles. And um, the protective parts are like those kind of defense mechanisms and anger is often one of them. But it can also be um, like hyper positive, being hyper positive, or being a people pleaser, or being, you know, um, making sure that you are completely organized and always do going and doing things or whatever it is, it's these protective parts that keep us from those more vulnerable parts that they've kind of exiled away. And so the key I have found, and maybe this is what you're describing. I mean, this is what IFS explains is that it's the key to getting to those vulnerable parts to be able to heal them is befriending these protectors first and, and being able to validate them and understand how they probably gained this, these parts of you gained this strategy very early in life and they, they gained it to survive, right. To be able to comply and please people or to defend themselves against harm. And so um, befriending them and, and validating them then allows them to give you access to those exiles. And the beautiful part, uh, the third aspect of IFS is actually that we all have at our core, the, what's called the capital S self. Um, that is, it has these eight C qualities. So it's um, compassionate, curious, um, calm, confident, clear, creative, 
um, connected and courageous. I think those are the eight mm-hmm. C's. And so, um, so when these parts, and what's fascinating is that Dick Schwartz, who developed IFS, he worked with people. And so he would identify these parts that were coming up in them. And just like, you know, if you were in a room with, because he was a family therapist and you had several people talking and you would need to say, oh, can you step back so I can talk one, one on one with this, that he would ask the parts inside the person, can you step back? Can you step back? And what he found is that as all the parts started to step back, this same person would emerge in every single client. He, he, at first he thought the one client would must just be so evolved, you know, and then he began working with all of these clients who had severe trauma history and attachment wounds. And in every single one, he found once the parts would step back, this, this um, presence that was very compassionate and very curious and kind would emerge. And um, so that's actually the part of us that heals all of those wounds. Um, and you can, um, you can call it whatever you want, right? The Imago Dei, the, the image of God within you, um, you can, whatever you want to call it, but, <laughs> but it's an experience. When you begin to experience that simultaneously, you can have this like whole uh, compassionate, strong, like kind of inner parent presence alongside a very weak, vulnerable or angry or whatever part. And that this can actually heal those parts. Um, It's pretty, it's pretty transformative. So this has actually been my goal in helping other homeschool moms is actually to going deep into those first feelings, those uncomfortable feelings. And I know that the people that engage with me are very aware that we're going to go deep and (laughs) we're going to, we're going to go into these unexplored areas. And at the same time, I know from experience, and I have met a lot of people that do not want to feel the feelings. Thank you. They are uncomfortable. I actually had a therapist once ask me, why, or what do you do with those existential feelings that you have in the middle of the night when you wake up and you're just like, ah, life, ah, what is this? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know. I, I turn on a meditation or I'll watch something for a bit, or I'll get up and I'll read or something to distract myself. And he said, why not just sit with it? Like, why not let yourself feel it? And my response was because it's going to consume me because it's going to you know, take over everything that's inside of me. And I'll become, I don't know, I'll disappear. I'm not sure what I thought would happen to me. Uh But it was no, thank you. I don't want to feel those feelings. And I think that we are encouraged to just be nice. Or at least the messages I had, just be nice be positive. Like you said, do stuff, be meaningful or important or do things that are important for other people or meaningful for other people. Or you could have all sorts of different messages attached to what you should do, but it's about doing, and it's not about being, it's not about feeling the feels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky, tricky message that culture teaches us because it really is telling us to ignore all the feelings. And frankly, a lot of us also don't have the opportunity in our families to have someone hold our feelings. I certainly did not do this. And in for a very long time in my family, it was very, um, Mm -hmm. it's been a very slow transition to learn all of these things. And I'm still learning it. But Mm -hmm. to really hold people's feelings and say, your feelings matter. 
and I can listen to them and hold them. That's hard enough for us to do for ourselves, let alone somebody else. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I like what you're saying because of a lot, so many of, so I work one-on-one with people and I also have uh, groups weekly. And so many people have talked to me about um, this existential crisis in the middle of the night, usually around 4 a.m. And that just wakes them up in a terror, in a panic. Um, and I have certainly experienced this as well. And so something that's fascinating that helped me early on, and one of my first teachers and mentors is Martha Beck. And oh. I remember her saying, um, when the fear comes, give it permission to speak, give it permission to get bigger, because the one who gives it permission is bigger still. Yes. So it, it becomes when you look at the fear in the face and you say, it's okay for you to be here. You can speak. Now there are two, there's the fear and there's the one giving it permission. And so now the fear is not uh, in IFS language. It's not blended with you because a lot of parts. So when I talk to people's parts, Um, they often have this exact fear that you're saying that if I let this emotion come in or this vulnerable part take over, I will be consumed. I will be overwhelmed. And they're absolutely right. That is what happens (laughs) because these parts of us so desperately want to be seen that they just will take us over if they have a chance. And so what I've learned to do that is incredibly effective. So I encourage you or any of your listeners to try this, but when you notice that you're becoming overwhelmed with an emotion, whether it's fear or sadness or anger, I acknowledge it. And I say, I want to see you. Can you back up just enough? Like, and so I'll say, can you be nose to nose with me so that I can see you? And it's actually very similar to your mirror exercise, because what ends up happening is I feel a shift in my body to now, and I just, some people are visual, some people are not. So you might see an image in front of you, or you might just feel the energy kind of in front of you. But for me, I'll I'll often see myself in this very distressed position. And I immediately have compassion. Mm. I say, Oh, my goodness, that same kind of feeling you're feeling so awful. I see it. So when if you can externalize the emotion in that way, it will stop flooding you. Mm-hmm. And then you can give it what it really wants, which, which is compassion and attention. Such a profound, such a simple tool and not at all obvious, like it's not <laughs> remotely something that you'd think, well, I'm going to have an existential crisis in the middle of the night and I'm going to feel consumed by these feelings. Why don't I just feel them? And it, it just seems so counter-effective, except it is exactly that. It's like an observing and a distancing and realizing, yes, I'm honoring the fact that you feel the feelings, but then they almost become smaller and they just, they kind of, they do, you know, they just get, they get very small in my experience. And, and I, I encourage uh, anyone who's listening, often our parts don't want to try something because if they're like, Oh no, no, it's going to overtake me. You're not right. So I often will say, you know, just think of it like an experiment and just try it one time and see what happens because you need to test it and approve it. Right. So when I first tried it, I remember being like, Oh gosh, I can't let this terror take me over. 
Yes. And so, but I remember being like, okay, I'm just going to try it. And I turned toward it and I said, okay, fear, get bigger. You have permission to get bigger. Tell me everything. What are you afraid of? And it would, if this is what it felt like, it felt like the fear went, oh, oh, you, you're going to let me be here. Oh, okay. It's okay. Forget it. Right. It, <laughs> it just, it just dissipated. Exactly. And it's so counterproductive. So many people that I know in my sphere that have said, no, I'm not supposed to feel angry, or they've bought into certain messages about how they're supposed to be happy, or they're supposed to be something. And then they don't allow themselves to feel these feelings, they're actually shortchanging themselves. And obviously, I mean, the obvious discussion point is also that we are actually teaching our kids this. And, you know, to be clear, I have actually taught my kids that exact thing. And I still feel like I'm in the process of backing out of the room and trying to go, no, let's try to honor the feelings, whatever you're feeling you're having, whatever feeling I'm having, both of them and try to unravel some things rather than keep building on this. We'll just pretend everything's good when everything's good and, and pretend away the uncomfortable feelings. I want, I wanted to, um, to make a clarification about, about the experiencing the emotion. Okay. Cause I wanted to validate when people say, Oh, you know, like you were saying the anger is dangerous, right? It makes people act out. It makes people do things they regret. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or the, you know, the fear and the, the, you know, it's painful. The sadness is painful. Um, those things are all true, but so the distinction is this, is that when the emotions come up, if you can imagine them being like these, these little inner children, that really want attention. The key is that when those inner children do take us over, and I would say they're in our seat of consciousness, they behave in that way, like like children or maybe impulsively. And so what really is happening is that they're allowed to come up and the, the this beautiful true nature of us, our self or inner parent comes toward them and gives them attention. So those emotions are really for us. They're for our benefit to hear them, to say, what are your concerns? What are your needs? Because what they're doing is they're showing you what your needs are. Uh And so we listen to them. If we don't listen to them, that's when they end up blending with us and taking us over and, and coming out in those ways. So actually turning toward them and giving them voice to be heard internally by ourself then what ends up happening is the self then turns around and I know people can't see me. I'm using my hands here, but um, the self turns around and speaks for them to the other people. So instead of them taking you over and, and speaking out maybe in some volatile ways, they're heard by the self, the self can turn around and speak for them. So that's the, kind of, you know, letting them come up and letting them be heard. But the person that really needs to hear them is yourself. Right. First. Yeah. And this is a natural, like the natural extension is how we're actually engaging our children's emotions. Yes. And, you know, coming from the perspective that we have stuff to do. I've got plans today. You need to learn some stuff. We're <laughs> going to get to this extracurricular activity at three 30, whether you're in the car or not. <laughs> 
car. Yeah, yeah. Lately, it's more, am I in the car at 3.30 or not? But, you know, we're going to do these things because they're super important. And I don't have time for these emotions. I don't have the time for the, you know, the experience of the children fighting in the backseat because who wants to sit next to who and who's touching who and put your feet over there and don't touch this. And, and that has been my instinct. This is a very common experience. This, this experience of, I don't really have time for emotions from my kids. I don't want to invest the time. What would you say to that? Well, my first response is you don't have time not to do that. You don't have time not to address emotion and because what ends up happening is it festers underneath and it will eventually cause, you know, a, this huge pressure cooker explosion. Yes. Right. So, so when, when the emotion is there, if you can catch it as early on as you can um, and, and really honor it, listen to it. Oh, what's the need underneath um, and allow emotion and you can, and, and this, you, you teach your children so many wonderful life skills by doing this. Um, because when you, you, you teach them that, okay, when you notice an emotion in your body and it could be, so what I teach is, you know, this is your body compass. And so we have, um, and I teach four primary emotions, which is pretty easy for kids. There are all kinds of nuances, but, um, sad, mad, glad, and a frad. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and really when you're glad, right, when you're feeling happy and peaceful, and it means that your needs are being met in that moment. And, you know, you can have different parts of you, some parts where the needs are met and some that are not, but, um, but that's really what that indicates. Now, when you're feeling sad or mad or afraid, it, it indicates to you, it's like a little um, thermometer and that, you know, that says, oh, there's an unmet need. So that's just an alert that says, oh, go deeper now and get curious. Yes. I wonder what the unmet need is. And so we can do that with ourselves and with our children. And sometimes our needs can, our needs conflict, right? So I have an unmet need and my child has a different unmet need and they are opposing each other somehow. And really what's opposing is our strategy to get the need met. Cause I think, Oh, well, I have to get in the car and do this at this time. And that's my strategy. And you're opposing it right now, you know? And so it makes sense that we feel frustrated, but if we can identify the core need and then get curious about what the child's need is, it's this beautiful problem solving that will serve them for the rest of their lives where now it's not me against you. It's not you're impeding me. It's okay. You have a need and I have a need and they're both valuable. Let's both be on the same side and solve this problem. How can we meet both of these needs in a creative way? And usually I'll give my children the, the um, opportunity to brainstorm first because they're more creative than me. They usually come up with these amazing things that I never would have thought of. And um, uh, you want me to give you an example? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the one I often say, there's so many, but, um, is that my son wasn't coming down for dinner and I would get in the past, I would get angry and I would stomp up and say, you know, ah, oh, how dare you, you rude child. <laughs> I just spent all this time making dinner, get down here. 
And then he wouldn't come down. Okay, now I'm going to take away your electronics for three days. You know, start um, um, familiar. <laughs> yeah, I would you know use all the bribery or punishment, and um, and it you know it might work in the moment, but it created a disconnect in our relationship because now he's doing what I want for this very external motivation. And, um, and there's no connection between us, right? He's not coming down to dinner because he has this open-hearted desire to be with us, <laughs> yes. meet our need. And a lot of people, a lot of, especially people in authority, like parents will say, but isn't that my job? I'm supposed to make them do, you know, whatever I want them to do. And I'm in charge. But what I found is that, um, when, if I get curious about their needs and we come up with a solution together, it actually saves so much time in the big picture. So, um, so in nonviolent communication, you make an observation. Yes. And so, um, and that means without judgment. So it means the other person would agree to it. So at, not even in the time of chaos, but later I said, so um, you, I've noticed that you haven't come down for dinner when I called you the last three nights in a row. Right. And he would agree to that. And um, I said, so, so what's up? So I'm just wanting to be very open and hear from him what is happening on his end. And he explained that he was playing this video game and that it lasted a certain amount of time. And that is, if he just left, he would leave his team. He would be betraying them. And I hadn't even thought of that. I thought, oh, he's being loyal <laughs> to his friends. Um, and I had no clue, right? Usually we don't, we don't have the full picture. We don't know what's happening for the other person, unless we really are open to hearing from them. Right. So I, so then once he felt heard by me and validated, Oh, wow, that's really great of you. <laughs> you know, yeah. did not want to betray or abandon your friends. Um, I said, so, and then I present my need. I have a need for you for, or to have time together as a family. This is really the only time during the day where we're all together. And, um, and so, so how do you think we can both get our needs met? And he, his response was, well, what if we, I think he gave one response first that didn't meet my need. I think he said something like, well, what if I just come down, you know, half an hour later? And I was like, no, no, that doesn't meet both our needs, right? The, the goal is we had to both get our needs met. So then he said, okay, well, what if you like ring a bell or you call up 10 minutes before and that way I won't start a new game if I haven't, and I'll finish the one that I have, that I'm in, and then uh, I'll come down and we've never had the problem again. Right. I mean, what he- I've been so surprised by is that actually at core, people just want to be heard or understood. And then all of a sudden the, the intense energy or the conflict, the energy in the conflict just dissipates simply because they're heard. Yes. But I know as a mom that um, at least my default setting is to hear you want something opposite of me. Therefore, you're not wanting to meet my need. And I think I know this better in my relationship with my partner that mm-hmm. and only out of absolute practice, so much practice, so much practice that I've come to understand that he is separate. He thinks differently he sees the world differently. He has different needs and yeah. he loves me all at the same time. And just yes. like that, there's a, there's a difference of, you know, sometimes there's a, I need something and 
and he needs something at the same time. But at core, I know that he's able to meet that because, or he wants to meet that. And that's all that really matters for me. And I'm it, somehow it's easier. It's been easier for me to process that with him than it has been with my kids. Yeah. And, yeah. Probably partly because I don't see that they are trying to be on the same page as me sometimes. Yeah. And I, I, I could be wrong. I'm not saying this about your situation, but I, I often think it's really hard when there's an authority structure, right? right? When we've, we've been trained, whether it's, you know, a parent of a child or a teacher or a boss or government or whatever, that it's our job or we have the right to tell them, you know, what to do. And so right. one of the aspects of um, nonviolent communication is that when we, ma- we make a request and not a demand, and we're really trained up to make demands of our, of our children. Right. right? You've hit it bang on. <laughs> and so yeah. that was one of the hardest things for me at first. And again, it was an experiment because there was a part of me that was like, oh, I can't do this. Like this, this is my job. I'm supposed to tell them what to do, you know? And um, so I remember one of the first times it felt very, very vulnerable saying, okay, this is my need. can you meet it? Like with, with an open hand and, and, and having to be okay if they said no. Right. And what I've found, first of all, is that one of our primary human needs is for autonomy. Uh And so whenever someone makes a demand of us, some people and some children, depending on their personality will immediately say no. Yes. It's not, that's the only need that it's, that it's um, coming up against. So it's not even that it's competing with other needs for them. It's just, you've made a demand. And so they don't have autonomy. So I have found that making it, you know, a a request with an open hand, meaning you are free to say, no, I'm not going to punish you. If you say no, they are often more likely to say yes. Yes. And the only time they will say no is if they truly have a competing need. And so no is not the end of the conversation. No is the beginning of the conversation because they're, they know that they're free to say no. And then I can say, oh, tell me what your competing need is. I want to understand where you're coming from. And then again, we do this, this little game almost. Like it's like solving a puzzle. Ah, okay, so this is your need this is my need. It looks on the surface, like they just can't both be met, but we know that we, like you were saying with your spouse, we both value them both, Uh right? They're, they're both valuable. And sometimes maybe it's not possible for this other person to meet our need. And, And it does need to be another person, or it needs to be at a different time, or it needs to be in a different way, in a different place, or but, but we learn to become really creative. I mean, there's so many solutions that we'd never thought of before, but we're so attached to this strategy, right? But, but there, so we work together and it, it's really kind of, we build connection with each other working on, on the problem. Actually, I find that it's not just do I make a request of them? But also sometimes when they speak unkindly or they, they really are not aware that how they just spoke really hurts me. And my instinct is to get angry. You can't hurt me like that. And I thought that that was the appropriate thing because that's the message that I had growing up was you're going to have to defend yourself because no one else will. So you're going to have to say the thing 
in contrast to, or to make sure they know they can't say that. But I've learned that that is not the true need, or it's not the true way to engage that need. If I really want them to see that the way they're engaging, the way they're speaking, their tone, their manner is really hurting me, it is actually just show them that I feel hurt. Mm-hmm. But that feels very vulnerable. Yeah, and especially with your child who, like you said, you're not supposed to engage like that. So I'll just tell you like it is, you're not supposed to talk like that. But instead, when I show them that vulnerability, I've been very surprised that they actually really do care. And then they engage that as, oh, I I didn't mean to hurt you like that. And not only did it help them really understand how they're engaging, but it also helps me see that the way they're engaging isn't personal at all. It is actually them just doing their thing and learning what they need to learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's, so Marshall Rosenberg has this thing where he says people often uh, do what he calls a tragic expression of their unmet needs. So when a person yells and screams and calls us names and, or when we do that, right, it's a tragic expression of our unmet needs because they're not likely to get met that way. It's really hard to see what the need is underneath. So our children are often doing that. And I've definitely found what you said that kind of the vulnerability of course, not manipulative, not putting it on, but really genuinely showing how we're feeling yeah. and expressing that they often will really respond. But um, I, it may, you made me think of this. Um, one of the first times I remember practicing nonviolent communication, um, my, so we were going to a family's house for dinner and my son, I think he was 11 and he really wanted to stay home and meet with his friends, but we were going to be gone for like six hours and I didn't, was not comfortable leaving him home for that long. And he he wanted to go outside of the house and all of these things. So it was kind of an adamant, no, this is not okay. And um, he was so upset that he started screaming, I hate you. I hate you. Right. And in the past, I would have felt so hurt by that or so um, just how dare you, you cannot speak to me like that or something like that. But because I was able to drop into curiosity, I saw, Ooh, He's expressing a need very tragically. What could be the need underneath? And so I started guessing. And so what happens when you guess with another person is if you don't guess correctly, they'll say, no, (laughs) they'll tell you that that's not my need. Right. And when you guess correctly, their body will relax and they'll say, yes. So, so I started guessing and I said, are you having a need like for recreation to, and he's like, no, mom. <laughs> you know? like, okay. Okay. That's not it. And I said, um, are you having a need for, um, like just connection with your peers? And he's like, I guess. Yeah. You know, and I said, are you having a need for like freedom to make your own choices and have more independence? And he said, yes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. So So this makes sense. So then I explained to him, well, so I have this need for safety Mm -hmm. around like knowing that you're, you know, I can trust you to be on your own and that you're safe. So I explained, we're not going to be able to do it this time, but let's make a plan for you to build that to, you know, maybe we'll leave you for 10 minutes and we'll see how you do. And then we'll leave you for an hour. And then, you know, and you're, then you can build up to having this independence. And he was very happy with that. 
he was it's because there there was a there was a road you know toward it but anyway so it's just yeah like you said when our kids when anyone acts out even ourselves it's it's a tragic expression of our unmet needs but if we can get curious about what the need is underneath we'll find often empathy because we have the same kind of needs and just like you said in the beginning that you don't have a choice not to address those emotions Oh, how I wish I knew that way early on. (laughs) I really do. Because I caused myself so much trouble. And of course, the people in my world, because I wasn't acknowledging their feelings. But I didn't acknowledge my feelings until I was at least four or five years into homeschooling, when it became a mountain of uh, overwhelm and resentment and feeling of like exhaustion and discovering that it was a Brené Brown TEDx talk actually and mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what she said but she said something about vulnerability and authenticity and it spoke to me that I have no idea who I am or what I'm about I am trying to do everything for everybody else but like you spoke in the beginning there was no true north awareness there was just I'll just play my role and do my things and everything will be good and it turned out it wasn't it felt really bad and it wasn't working and there were so many different dynamics relationship dynamics that really weren't working and I don't think that there is an easy solution for any family or let me say this I don't think that there is a formula for people to come Mm -hmm. to the awareness that they need to go down this direction Mm -hmm. but I do ask for, you know, I I ask you, what would you say to parents that are struggling with their intense emotions, but are hearing us and saying way too much work? No, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I, I kind of think that people do need to get to a point where on their own, where they, they want, um, where sometimes I do think that that's what happens is we, we hit a a wall or we, you know, for me, again, I had breakdowns, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it was mental and physical breakdowns that brought me to the point where I realized, oh, I can't keep neglecting this. Like this really does need help. And I know it can feel overwhelming at first because initially there's so much that has been buried Yeah, and there's all of these coping mechanisms that we've learned. So have grace on yourself do it a little bit at a time. Um, I like to think of, you know, especially if we've suppressed our emotion for a long time, it's like, there's this pressure cooker in our belly that is just packed down and full in there. And so if we can designate, you know, five, 10 minutes a day where I'm just going to release the valve and release a little bit out Mm -hmm. and you don't have to do it all the time, you know, just, just a little bit of a practice where you release that. Um, And then, I often will also use the analogy of, you know, when you're, when you're learning a new, uh, a new habit really, right. Because we have these defaults of how we respond to emotion or how we respond to our kids. It's like, we're, we're digging a new trench for the, the snow melt to go down the mountain. Right. Right. And so it's used to going down the same paths of the rivers and the streams and we want to divert it to a new path. Initially, it takes a lot of work. It really is. It is work, you know, to dig this new trench, but then it does become our default. Right. And so for, for me, initially, 
it was very difficult to even remember to turn toward my own emotion and let it come up and be compassionate. Yeah. Um, but it was something I had to experiment with to show my parts that it was okay. And then, and then practice more and more, maybe notice after the fact and then during, and then before, and then, and to now where it is, I can absolutely say that it's my default. Whenever any kind of physical pain, emotional pain comes up, I immediately move toward it rather than away from it, um, which I never would have done before. Um, but it's definitely my default now. And I'll, I'll come, you know, even if I have stub my toe, you know, I'll go toward it like, oh, oh, you're hurting. I love you. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And a practice. So that, is, that brings us hope because the initial aspect of, or in the initial engagement of this seems absolutely overwhelming and almost impossible because it's just like you said, it's trying to literally allow that little mountain ice runoff in spring to create its separate path and to get large enough that it causes that path to grow and grow. And every spring, it'll just keep running down that specific path. I I often encourage people to engage in mindful moments to actually schedule in their alarm clock. If yeah. they are old, old school and don't have a phone like, me, or have a, <laughs> yeah, I'm the only one in North America without a cell phone, but also, you know, iPod or whatever screen you have to schedule a mindful moment when that alarm goes off or that timer goes off and you hear that little ding to stop and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? Uh, to begin to understand your intense emotions and, you know, to engage one at a time, because there's all sorts of feelings that we feel just like you're referring in internal family systems to different selves with the parts, parts, (laughs) different parts. And so if we engage just one at a time, then it really does help to dispel that intensity. But if we tell ourselves, especially in the beginning, we're just going to engage this the right way. (laughs) That's the way I approached it in the beginning. You won't do it the way that we most want to show up in. It's a great idea when we're not triggered. It's a great idea when we haven't had this intense experience or this intense feeling. When we're in the intense feeling and we haven't put any practice in it or we haven't practiced a pause or we haven't turned to ourselves, like you said, uh, it's very, very difficult to do. But, you know, practicing in the moments when you're not feeling that great intensity, that's Mm -hmm. useful to actually, in a mindful moment, in an alarm clock, ask yourself, how am I really feeling right now? And start to explore what's going on inside here in a non-triggered moment. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I would, I always would tell people it's like, you know, people who play sports and they go and they lift weights or they, um, you know, run drills. And what they're doing is they're practicing for game day when the pressure is on, they're building those muscles. And so when we do practices, daily practices, like you're talking about, and it can be just for even for 30 seconds or, you know, like you said, just a a really brief check-in because sometimes our parts that resist change have a hard time with, with adding something really big. So start really, really small and just set that alarm and check in. I'll usually say, you know, just check your body is I'll just say whatever is alive in you. Like, Mm -hmm. is there a physical pain or sensation? Is there emotional energy? Is there a thought that keeps going through your mind Just see what's alive in you? And what you'll notice is that 
there's different things alive in you every time you check. It's like this constantly changing ocean ecosystem. And, and again, there's no, there's no fixing anything. It's just seeing it, just seeing it is so powerful because then there becomes the one who's feeling this and the one who sees it. And, and that awareness um, is really to me where the healing takes place. Mm -hmm. So just, just seeing it, like you said, just what emotion am I, am I feeling right now? Because often we're not even aware. Yeah. I wanted to stop for a moment and just address the listeners, Mm -hmm. the ones, the moms that are feeling this and know exactly what we're talking about, but thinking this is way too much. And I identify because once upon a time, when I first heard some of this, I thought there is no way that I'm going to do this. (laughs) This is not my history. This is not how I was taught in my family. This is not my default setting in my own family when my, when my children were probably until my oldest was 12. So solidly eight years I've had exploration in this. This is not an easy thing to engage, but you absolutely can begin the process of delving deep into who you really are and exploring all your different selves and all your different feelings and coming to a place of, I would say, peace in it and acceptance and compassion so that you can engage and show up with your kids the way that you want to show up. If I can do it, you can do it. And I'm not always doing it. So I'm not going to say that I'm always doing it. I'm putting the practice in and I'm creating that, like you said, that little mountain runoff. And I am creating a new path for myself, for my kids, for all my relationships. And it's a practice and it can be done. Mm -hmm. This has been such a beautiful conversation. And I think we could really, we should explore so many different elements of this. For those that want more encouragement, I definitely want to point them towards your website, The Ordinary Sacred. But before I ask you about why you called your website The Ordinary Sacred, I would like to hear what's the area of exploration that you're gaining for yourself these days? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, Because I was thinking about this actually in my walk this morning, I was thinking, um, I feel like I'm homeschooling myself. Like, I think we, yeah. we school ourselves forever, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's really about allowing ourselves to move toward whatever fascinates us. Right. And, uh, I love Martha Beck's definition of fascination, which is attention without effort, mm. find those things, you know, Oh, this, this fascinates me. That fascinates me. Um, well, I, so something that my husband and I are exploring right now is the possibility of moving to a little town in Ecuador. Oh, wow. And so uh, that's something that is fascinating us right now. There's this little town that's kind of, um, they call it the Valley of Longevity. Oh, really? And, Perfect. Yeah, it has, um, uh, it's called Vilcabamba, but it has um, just these beautiful um climate it's between the the jungles you know it's in the mountains between the jungles and the ocean and it's uh just you know temperate climate all year and organic fruits and vegetables all year so um yeah that's something that is fascinating me right now is that sounds beautiful researching that part of the world i i continue to kind of an endless fascination for me is internal family systems uh, that's probably the core of what I do. 
Um, and so I'm constantly, constantly reading, practicing, uh, do, it's a, it's a lifestyle for me. So, um, that's just always an area of exploration for me too. It has been a pleasure to learn from you. And there's so many things that I gain from you, both in your workshops and on Instagram, um, the ordinary sacred. You've told me the story before, but would you share the story with the listeners where you came up with the name? Yeah. So this was, um, many years ago. I, I, I was reading Eckhart Tolle's um, A New Earth. And that was a book initially that was so radical to me. It was yeah, just, me too. it was, it was yeah. like a foreign language, you know, but at the same time, there was this core part of me that resonated with it. It was like, there's something true about this. I don't know. It's nothing I've ever heard before. And so when I first read it, it took me a year to read it. And I would, I put it by the, my kids were little, little, like three and five or something. And I had the book on my bathroom, in my bathroom, by the toilet. And when I would go to the bathroom, which was like my only break for my children, right? I would read a, a, a line or two and I would just marinate in it. And I remember the first time I really practiced presence, just being fully present with what was in the here and now around me. And I remember being amazed by the design of the doorknob and the flow of the curtains and the way the sunlight was coming through the window. And I, and there was a tree outside my window that I had quote unquote seen a thousand times, but I saw it for the first time and I wept. Mm. I was so moved by the fact that this, this tree was holding all of this life inside of it. And it was alive itself and the way it was moving in the wind. And I was, it was a truly moving spiritual experience for me. And I began to realize that when we become fully present, we find that everything that we thought was ordinary is actually sacred. And so th there's nothing more powerful. I mean, it's very powerful in nature and with everything, but there's nothing more powerful to me than when I'm with another person. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I become <laughs> so overwhelmed. I often will come to tears, right? I'm looking at you now and I, I see yeah. the value of you mm. and, and it's, it's um, yeah, just, just everything becomes our own bodies and the way that they work. I mean, everything's miraculous. <laughs> So that's kind of where I started writing a blog about my experiences of, of awakening to the, the miracle of everything. To and, the ordinary uh, sacred. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of how it started. That is beautiful. And I can see this conversation is one that we have to do again and we have to do it in different contexts. Yeah. We'd love to. It has been such a joy to share this time with you. And I, you know, for those that are interested in getting to know you a little bit more and the things that you offer, the community that you enable, would you share with us online where you are? Yeah, so I am, my website is theordinarysacred.com. And then on Instagram, it's the underscore ordinary underscore sacred. Um, and then I also have a private Facebook group. It's just for people who want to 
be with others who are doing inner work. And it's called, I believe it's called the Ordinary Sacred Self-Healer Circle. But if you search that on Facebook, um, I'll let you in. (laughs) Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Teresa. I would love to learn more about who you are. So introduce yourself at the Homeschool Mama Self-Care Instagram page or the Facebook group, the Homeschool Mama Support Group so we can support and encourage each other in our homeschool challenges. While you're there, you can check out my book of homeschool encouragement, Homeschool Mama Self-Care, Nurturing the Nurturer. If you're a homeschool mama looking for a mentoring group to gain clarity, confidence, and vision in your homeschool, to create a plan to nurture the nurturer, and be intentional in how you show up in your homeschool, ask me about the Homeschool Mama Retreat, All the show notes and links to this episode will be found at www.capturingthecharmlife.com. Until next time, I hope you and your kids have a charmed week, or if you're having one of those weeks, I hope you can reframe your challenges into your homeschool charms.